Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. Partly cloudy skies. Welcome to this Wednesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. We'll begin with this, some major news. We'll be going forward with it in Atlanta. So we've given a lot of thought to it and we will be going forward with the mask ordinance in our city. That's Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms speaking to WABE's Emma Hurt earlier today. And while appearing on the cable network news program Morning Joe, Mayor Bottoms added. I specifically asked our governor uh, about allowing Atlanta to go forward with mandating masks in our city. He refused. Other cities um, have taken the approach that they are going to defy the governor's executive order. Um, and they, Savannah has done it, some other cities have done it, and Atlanta is going to do it today uh, because the fact of the matter is that COVID-19 is wreaking havoc on our city, specifically black and brown communities with the higher death rates, and we will never be able to reopen our schools and our economy if we don't take some responsibility what we can do as leaders to to make sure that people aren't exposed to this virus. And now we'll welcome in for his reaction, Atlanta City Council Member Andre Dickens. Council Member Dickens, thanks for taking the time. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Ro. Were you surprised at all by Mayor Bottoms' announcement that she is looking to sign some type of order mandating or requiring facial coverings or masks here? I am in full support of that. You know, this is necessary for us to stop spreading this deadly virus, um, to wear masks. You know, if two people have on masks, it's less likely for us to transmit this virus. And as we're seeing crowds gathering for all kinds of functions and we see individuals are, you know, we're talking about going back to school soon. All of these things cross my mind as a necessity for us to require people to wear masks. And I applaud the mayor for doing this. I know a number of us have been talking about, you know, can we do this? Uh, we should, you know, we were wanting to do this earlier, but there's a lot of things that, you know, we have to sort through in order to be able to do this, to mandate uh, wearing masks. And so there is some constitutionality that we had to look into. We also have a state that has uh, made their mark on things, saying that they are the law of the land and that even jurisdictions can't control uh, some of the uh, aspects related to this. Uh, and, and that's a bold step, and I support her in that one. Now, Governor Bryant Kemp has said that he would like for everyone to be on the same page. He's urging Georgians to wear a mask and to practice social distancing and wash hands and all of that. Do you think there will be any pushback from the governor on this? You know, it's hard to say with the governor. My hope is that he acknowledges that Atlanta is a unique place in the state of Georgia because of our size, 
our density and the attractions that we have that individuals come to our outdoor and indoor attractions, even the ones that are uh, maybe closed or reopening. So our position in the state is the heartbeat of the state. And so at some point he has to allow us to make these kind of very important decisions. The other reason is because a lot of the health infrastructure for the state is in our city, the trauma centers, the ICU clinics, the, the various places that people come to, whether they are having a COVID emergency or just any other emergency, we are strained. And so therefore, some of this relief will come by us mandating that people wear a mask. And I hope he allows us that latitude to be able to require that. And then we can monitor how the cases go down. We can monitor how the deaths go down and how the recoveries go up. And then we will acknowledge that this was a good move. And um, that will give him some data points to, you know, share with other cities and maybe other states if we do mandate wearing masks. And I hope that we don't get a negative consequence from the governor for trying to protect Atlantans from others as well as Atlantans from themselves. And Councilmember Dickens, language is going to be so important in all of this because urging Atlantans to wear masks and facial coverings is one thing, mandating is another. So to be clear, you are in favor of a mandate from the mayor in signing this order. Yes, I am. And I know mandates is an inflammatory word to some people as we talk about civil liberties of all kinds. And I've seen enough YouTube and Twitter videos of folks fighting in a Walmart or at restaurants or what have you, because someone has told them this place is a requirement that you wear a mask and then all kind of antics take place after that. And we are in a heightened state right now. Let's keep it real. Atlanta right now, we have a large discussion about police reform. We do not want to have a whole bunch of police running out around here being the, the, the mask managers, right? Mm-hmm. So at every, at every street corner, at every gas station, at every grocery store and restaurant, now we're going to have 911 calls to say, there's a guy in here that's not wearing a mask. So I think there are some challenges that we will have to navigate through. Nothing is perfect and the nuances are very real. And so any listener that you have, anybody in the uh, city that will say this is a black or white, you know, one way or another issue, Mm -hmm. uh, we need to just say the mandating of the mask is a step to remind everyone that they should be wearing a mask. And if there's a few handful of people that you spot out there not wearing a mask, then we'll have to have a delicate conversation about, hey, do you mind wearing a mask? And then let's not turn into citizens arrest and let's not fight each other. Let's not, you know, have the store manager come out there and start pushing on people. Uh, you know, we don't need that kind of thing because we're trying to limit the amount of interactions that we have between police and citizen. And then so there, that, that this is all a very real time. All right. Atlanta City Councilmember Andre Dickens. As always, Councilmember Dickens, I appreciate you taking the time. Stay safe. All right. You too. And thanks for this topic being addressed. Now, Governor Kemp has said he believes Georgians do not need mandates to follow best public health practices. But he did tweet yesterday, quote, today, I encourage local leaders throughout our state to join us in the fight against COVID-19. With a unified voice, we will encourage all Georgians to wear a mask, wash their hands, practice social distancing and heed the advice of public health officials, close quote. 
Now, all of this comes after the number of COVID-19 cases in Georgia has surpassed 100,000. Georgia is the third state in the South to top 100,000 cases. The state has reported thousands of new cases on average each day for the past week, and testing is up as well. The Department of Public Health reports Georgia has averaged more than 20,000 tests a day over the past week. That's the highest level on record since the beginning of the pandemic. At this time, Georgia has 100,470 cases. Meanwhile, the number of deaths statewide is reported to be 2,899. And 12,226 are hospitalized. Of that number, more than 2,400 are ICU admissions. Now, all of this comes from the Georgia Department of Health. This is Closer Look. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. It's estimated the recent and ongoing protests may be among the largest in U.S. history. According to The New York Times, several polls estimate between 15 and 26 million Americans have joined in in demonstrations since the death of George Floyd and others. Now, some under the Black Lives Matter movement and other civil rights organizations. And while their protesters are taken to the streets, well, in the boardrooms across the country, many corporations are releasing statements and pledging to improve diversity within their own companies. Brands and companies have been weighing in in a variety of different ways. One of the first brands to speak out was Nike, which posted a short video that flipped the script on its iconic tagline. And tech companies including Apple, Google, Amazon, and Facebook are pledging millions of dollars to support groups fighting racial injustice. Google says it wants to dramatically boost its number of black executives. We also heard from Sony today. Facebook's kicking in $10 million to fight racial inequality. So yeah, companies are lining up uh, to wow. try and get behind this movement. Still, what can be done to move beyond those words and create actionable outcomes and solutions? Well, one local law firm here in Atlanta recently announced new programs aimed at improving diversity and inclusion. And joining me now to discuss this is J.C. Roper and Douglas Burrell, partners at the Atlanta-based law firm Drew Echo and Farmham. Mr. Roper, Mr. Burrell, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Rose, thank you for having us. Thank you. Before we get into what you all are doing, let's talk about this wave of trend of companies and coming out and pledging to improve diversity or pledging or taking a stance even against racism. What's your take on all that? And then Mr. Burrell, I'll start with you. Well, this isn't the first time this has happened. I mean, this has happened uh, at different points uh, along the our history. And we're at an inflection point in society right now. I equate what's going on kind of like the Arab Spring. It's an awakening. And so we're getting companies trying to rededicate themselves and make strong statements. But at the end of the day, it's what are they going to do? Mm -hmm. Uh, They have to do more than just bring in uh, black and brown faces in the doors of their organizations. They have to uh, make a serious commitment to a pro, uh, to promote them to the highest level, and especially women of color who seem to always be left behind. Uh, these different voices, the statistics show, you know, help corporations make better decisions and, quite frankly, make more money in the long run. So the real question is their commitment at this point, and that's up in the air. Mr. Roper? You know, we are at an inflection point in our history, but as Douglas has said, this is not the first time that corporations have sought to increase 
representation of underrepresented groups in the higher ranks of corporations and, quite frankly, law firms. Back in 2004, there was a call to action, a number of large corporations asking that law firms uh, diversify. It's called the call to action. Uh, Tom Sager, the general counsel of DuPont and Rod, Roderick Palmore at the time, sought to increase diversity and inclusion in law firms and called upon their law firms to increase the number and percentage of underrepresented groups in the profession. So it is good that corporations have stepped up to the plate to commit resources, Mm -hmm. uh, to commit dollars, which is important, to diversifying corporations and law firms. But it is all about action. There was a call to action in 2004. And in 2020, we seem to uh, be having that same sort of reaction, which is a new level of a call to action to remedy some of the inequalities and injustices suffered by a particular group of Americans. So I'm an eternal optimist. I'm hopeful that the dollars and the statements and the words will be followed by actionable steps, measurable steps to remedy some of the inequalities and quite frankly, the violence and the injustices that we have all seen played out in the in the national media. Let me ask you, when you think about that whole phrasing of diversity and inclusion, and as you said, it's much more than just hiring of black and brown people, then let's start with that. What does that look like, this whole diversity and in- inclusion narrative? What should that look like for a company? And I'll stay with you, Mr. Roper. Well, you know, when we think about diversity and inclusion, what we're really saying is that we want to fully appreciate diverse perspectives. And in order to do that, we have to seek the best talent, no matter what gender, race, or ethnicity. So moving to a more diverse and inclusive environment is moving toward an environment where the talents and perspectives of all people are equally respected and regarded. And so that's the premise, the basis of diversity. Diverse perspectives yield better results. And in order to do that, we have to seek the best talent, uh, no matter what the ethnicity or gender is uh, of a person. We're seeking the best talent. And, and that's the premise and the basis of diversity inclusion. And inclusion goes farther than just seeking to add black and brown faces. Mm-hmm. Inclusion is a total immersion, a total acceptance, a total embracing of different perspectives and different cultures and respecting those cultures and, and perspectives. Mr. Burrell, what about you? Well, inclusion's the key to, to diversity and inclusion. And, and what some of our white friends and colleagues, I'd like them to understand is that the burden of inclusion often falls on the black and brown people because we're walking into an environment where there's not that many of us. And a lot of our uh, white friends and colleagues never have that experience in life. And so they expect us to assimilate into the culture that they're in. At another law firm, my first law firm that I was in, and I won't name it, the question was, can he fit in? And and I would kind of laugh to myself because there was no question that I could fit in. I've had to do that all my life. We can fit in if we have an equal opportunity and if they can just put them selves in our place, what would it be like if they were asked uh, an African-American event and they have to walk in the door and there's a bunch of people that don't look like them? Mm -hmm. Well, they're at the mercy of someone who will then 
be kind to them, show them around, introduce them to people, and help them uh, through the process. And that's where inclusion really meets the road. It goes back to the simple question of, is this a person I'd invite to my house for dinner? Hmm. Am I comfortable enough inviting them into my real personal space? And that's where we've got to get. Interesting what you all have said, because let's look at your field, the legal profession. And this is a, a field that's been called one of the least diverse professions. And I'm looking at a 2019 report from the American Bar Association where only 5% of the lawyers in the U.S. are black and only 5% are Latino. What do you all make of that? Well, that, that's interesting, Rose, that you uh, mentioned that report because I actually reviewed that report again. And there have been a number of studies, um, American Bar Association report in 2019, um, that looked at and analyzed the progress or lack of progress in the profession as it relates to diversity and inclusion. And quite frankly, the legal profession has lagged behind corporate America in terms of its uh, diversifying and the call to diversify the workforce. There was also a- another study, which I think is very illuminating. Mm-hmm. In 2002, the federal EEOC examined the diversity in the legal profession or the lack thereof in the legal profession and examined uh, what has happened in terms of representation of minorities in the profession since 1975. In 1975, there were 2.9% African-Americans represented in the legal profession as lawyers. By uh, 2002, that percentage had only increased to 4.4%. And so when you mention the 2009 ABA study, which indicates roughly a 5%, uh, of minorities in the profession, African Americans, um, the progress and the increase in representation has not tracked the increase of other minority groups, mm-hmm. um, and in particular women. We, as a profession, have lagged behind in terms of increasing the number of African Americans and underrepresented groups and minorities in the legal profession. And, and that study is very illuminating because, to me, uh, we have seen to as a profession been able to significantly increase the number of and percentage of women mm-hmm. uh, attorneys in the profession. And we've also been able to increase substantially the number of women who have ascended and matriculated to partner in the profession. But we have not been able to seemingly duplicate that type of success for minorities in the profession. And I think underlying uh, some of the gaps that we see with regard to minorities being hired, retained, and ultimately making partner in the profession, um, there are a number of reasons for that. And I believe after being involved in this space for over 20 years mm-hmm. that as people, not just as lawyers and as managers and supervising partners, we all bring our biases to the workplace. We all have unconscious bias. Um, and the problem is, is that in some instances, those unconscious biases can be responsible and affect retention, recruiting, hiring, and can color our decisions. Well, and in order to increase the candidate pool, you have to look at the pipeline. And then that pipeline also, in terms of education, access. Well, look, there's problems all along the system. Mm-hmm. Clearly is one of, one of the problems. One of the things that has to happen is that we have to be visible publicly so that young uh African-Americans or other people of color 
see that uh, we that they if they want to go to law school that they can uh, ultimately become a partner in the law school. I mean, a partner in a law firm. Uh, finances is one of the things that that clearly has to be taken care of, mm-hmm. and some of it, uh, uh, we've got to help uh, show people the way. We've got to give them the roadmap. To, to how to be successful, because that's one of the, in, in terms of the pipeline, that's one of the biggest things. If you understand the rules to the game, you can play the win. And so it's important to teach people the rules of the game, how to get there to law school, how to be successful once you get in law school, and, 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 uh, and then how to be successful once you get into a law firm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got to have someone who can help guide you through that seven to 10 year process. And then they have to be willing to share the wealth with you. That's part of the reason why I think law firms are so uh, behind the curve. Lawyers should be leading the way and, and, and we're not. If you're just joining us, I'm joined by J.C. Roper and Douglas Burrell, partners at the Atlanta-based law firm Drew, Echo & Farnham. We're discussing the firm's efforts now to increase diversity and inclusion and the steps they would like to see the legal field take as well. Let's talk about solutions because I know that you all have a new diversity fellowship for first-year law students. Did this come out of just a recent actions that have been taking place throughout our nation, or is this something that you all have been wanting to do? Well, this is something that we've been wanting to do, and we put it in place before what has happened, which, you know, makes us proud because we're we're constantly pushing and striving as a law firm to get better. Uh, JC and I were talking with our board of directors just the other day, and one of our partners said to us, you know, as a firm, either you're going to get better or you're going to get worse. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're moving the needle to try to get better. That's why we started a first-year law student, uh, uh, sponsoring a first-year law student as a summer associate. That's why we just, uh, within the last two years, implemented a what we call a path to partnership program to teach some of our younger attorneys exactly what it takes to get the partner. And while our entire firm benefits it, it, it is in particular helpful to our women attorneys and our attorneys of color. And it goes through the whole gamut of what it takes to be a partner at a law firm. So we lifted the veil as a law firm and most law firms, they don't do that. And so those are the types of things that we're, we're doing as a firm to try and help make it easier for our women and our lawyers of color to become partners. And you all have a diversity committee. Well, we use the diversity committee and we have used the diversity committee for a number of years as a springboard, as a discussion pool of ideas. And out of our discussions through the diversity committee, we are able to collaborate and come up with a lot of strategic initiatives. Um, We are proud of the fact that we, as a law firm, frankly, were diverse before it was popular mm-hmm. uh, to capitalize on diversity. And I think Douglas Burrell and I were both very lucky to be beneficiaries of a vision from the original founders of having a diverse and inclusive firm. So we happened to be that way and have been that way for a long period of time and felt completely comfortable with presenting the ideas uh, and the intelligence that we've gained by being involved in this DNI space for quite some time. But I think it's uh, very important to 
focus and drill down on the pipeline, which is something we discussed often in mm -hmm. the diversity committee. There are there are many uh, opportunity points along the diversity pipeline, and I believe we believe that one of the most important points along the diversity pipeline is when students are in law school. It's important to meet uh, diverse students where they are, and it's important to for a law firm to dissect how it recruits uh, and, and dissect and probe how it assesses candidates and also dissect and probe and think critically about where you're recruiting students from. One of the um, initiatives that, that has come out of the diversity committee is our commitment to add and include a historically black college and university law school mm -hmm. to regular and permanent on-campus interview process so that casting a broad net to make sure that we are presenting opportunities to uh, tap into the best talent and uh, what better place to uh, include and seek that talent than from historically black college and universities. So th there are a lot of things and ideas that we discussed in the diversity committee. Those are just some of the things that have come out of the diversity committee. There are strategic initiatives. How frank and candid are some of the conversations that you all have had in the past or you are having now as it relates to understanding or looking through the lens of someone that does not look like you? Because you just mentioned that we all have this unconscious bias. And so have you had that moment, that acknowledgement, that reckoning within your firm? Yes. <laughs> and and it's unquestionably yes. <laughs> yeah. And it, but but it's an ongoing conversation. You mm -hmm. know, 14 years ago when we started our diversity and inclusion committee was the conversation with our managing partner at the time, who when we said, here's what we need, he said, go do it. And there was no hesitation. We've recently been engaged in conversations with our board of directors, and we're going to have additional conversations with our partnership because of this inflection point. Even though we've been growing as a firm over the years, there's still additional room for growth. And that's what we're talking about now is what are the other things that we need to do as a law firm to become more diverse, to bring those different ideas and thoughts, to understand the differences of each other and how to work with people who are different than you are mm -hmm. uh, in a lot of ways, but then get the same as you in a lot of ways. Well, just to add to what uh, Douglas has said, we have had those conversations, but those uncomfortable conversations have not just recently come about. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the things I'm proud about in terms of the communication of our firm and how we communicate is that we always have those uncomfortable conversations. And having those uncomfortable conversations are opportunities to grow and to get better. And those conversations didn't just start with the latest events that we saw in the media. Mm -hmm. Gentlemen, as we wrap up, I want each of you to reflect on right after law school, that time when you were ready to enter this, this field as a professional, and then now, and what your hope is going forward as it relates to all of this diversity and inclusion. And uh, JC, I'll start with you. Well, when I reflect on my journey, um, it, it, like most of us uh, who are in the profession, it has been both challenging and rewarding. Uh, one of the biggest challenges I think that I faced in the profession was the idea of representing 
an entire race of people. And I think all minorities come to the table with that heavy burden. Um, what I'm most proud about in terms of my experience with the firm is that I have never felt singled out. Um, I've never felt that my mistakes were over amplified. I've always felt that I've had an equal opportunity to either succeed or fail. Now, I'm not saying that's every African-American lawyer's experience or even every African-American lawyer that has been with his firm's experience because I don't speak for an entire uh, my entire race, but that has been my experience and I'm, I'm very proud about that. As I look back over my journey, uh, you know, from law school to now, uh, I, I, I am filled with pride because I stand on the shoulders of not only my parents, but, um, you know, scores of people who have sacrificed um, for people like me to have the opportunities that I have. So I'm very mindful of that, mm -hmm. uh, very proud of that. Um, and as I said, it is my, uh, my career has been filled with both challenges and rewards. And uh, all of it was worth it, all of the sacrifice, uh, all of the challenges that I face is certainly worth it to be in this place right now uh, at this firm where I am. Hmm. Douglas? Well, you know, for me, it starts with family. Um, my mom was the first person in her, her family to go to college. She's the oldest of 12 kids. My father went to college on the GI Bill after spending in the Navy. Uh, I'm one of eight children and my sister's the oldest. And, you know, my parents structured in such a way that I just followed the leader. And she went and got an MBA and I got an MBA and uh, along with my law degree. And that was the fir my first independent thought from just doing what my sister did was uh, was when I decided to go to law school. Uh, and so the, the pride of, of my family and my father uh, and mother uh, uh, with me being a lawyer. And then it and then it branches out to, you know, be, be able to become a partner in a law firm. And I have young uh, attorneys who will call me up and I always answer their call. I always take them out to lunch and I always pay because quite frankly, I make more money than they do. I should pay. <laughs> you <Right>? should pay. <laughs> I should. And I talk with them and try and help them as best I can. I think we owe it to, to our profession and to our people to, to always make sure our doors open. And there were people uh, like Ray Persons at King and Spalding and Bobby Shannon uh, who did the same thing for me uh, when I was coming up. And I, greatly appreciate that. So, you know, that's one thing. And then with internally within my firm, it's, it's a matter of doing the same thing, mentoring the, the young attorneys of color and, and the attorneys who are not of color, because it's important that if I help them, that then they will be comfortable enough to help lawyers of color when they become partners uh, or before they become partners. Um, and so it is, you know, the, it's about giving back uh, it's about standing on the shoulders of people who made sacrifices for you to be where you're at um, and and making sure that you never forget that because I we're in Atlanta, the black man, and there are only so many black partners in civil defense law firms. And JC and I are two of them. And, uh, you know, we know how lucky we are to be where we're at. And so to our families, to others, and to ourselves, 
to do the best we can and to help other people. Douglas Burrell, J.C. Roper, partners at the Atlanta-based law firm Drew Elkhorn Farnham. Thank you both for taking the time and thank you for the conversation. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Rose. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. Enjoyed it. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. As always, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. You know, recently Sesame Street and CNN teamed up to present a town hall on racism. And Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms participated. So first, here are the kids. How can we stop racism when the civil rights movement was a long time ago and we're still treated unfairly? What can we do as kids to help racism get better in our country? How can I help stop racism? How do I help against racism and stay safe? And Mayor Bottoms' response? I am so proud of them, Van. That's um, the first thing I want to say. And my message to them is just keep being who you are. Keep loving each other. And when you see someone who's doing something wrong or saying something wrong, say that it's wrong. Make sure that when your friends sometimes do things that they shouldn't do, that you say to them, that's not right and you shouldn't do that. And say it with love and just lead by example. Mm. And those clips courtesy of our good friends over at CNN. You know, it's not easy to talk about race-related issues with kids, or maybe it can be, or maybe it is. Now, back in 2018, I spoke with author Anastasia Higginbotham. At the time, she had just released a new children's book. It was called Not My Idea, A Book About Whiteness. Here's a trailer for the book. White supremacy is pretend, but the consequences are real. The truth is much simpler. This is a book about a white child who is seeing the TV over their mom's shoulder, uh, a murder by a police officer of an unarmed person who has their hands up, who has brown skin. So we see a child who's curious, who wants answers from the white family members available to them, and is not getting answers, is getting a lot of silence. Skin color makes a difference in how the world sees you and in how you see the world. Joining me now on the program for another conversation is Arthur Anastasia Higginbotham. Welcome back. Good to see you again via Zoom. Yes, I'm so thrilled that you were in touch with me. I was thinking about the other day that you were eager to talk about this as soon as the book came out. And um, and now there's a different level of interest, and it's it's interesting. <laughs> well, let me ask you this. Uh, as I mentioned coming into the segment, is it easy to talk about? Can it be easy? Whatever, however you define easy to talk about, not just race, but racism with children? I find it is easy, 
yes when you just go ahead and tell the truth. Mm-hmm. But you have to know the truth first, right? So there has to be an awareness of the distortion that's created by racism that makes us think it's going to be very, very hard to talk about. But it's very, very hard to make it sound nice. And it's hard to make it sound okay. It's not okay. It's not nice. It's, it's, uh, so the difficulty I think only comes when you're trying to put a spin on it Mm -hmm. and make it seem like it's going to be all right. And that, um, we can just be good people. And that's how somehow going to fix racism. And it's not, there have to be choices made every day, all the time. I want to back up for our listeners who may not be familiar with your book. I want you to dissect for them a little bit more about the premise and the purpose of the story. So I made a book which centers the problem of racism in whiteness and in a tendency within white families to not talk about race or the the experiences that we are having as white people in a racist culture, in a white supremacist structure that favors white children. Um, So based on this lie of white superiority, there are all these systems in place, there are all these beliefs that are crowding into our minds and pervasive in in our conditioning and our upraising when when we're born white into this culture. And the only way to engage with racism with any kind of integrity is to acknowledge that this is happening, that this favoring is happening, that um, there's a lot of trouble that my white sons don't experience. It doesn't find them. Mm-hmm. And um, I need to make them aware of that and also counter the messages that are telling them that they're better, that they're any smarter, that they're any more deserving or worthy or, or that they're innocent. Um, if you're born into a corrupt system, there is a way in which you're complicit right from the start. And so the answer to that is not to despair, but to step into anti-racism, the, the practices of anti-racism, in addition to the beliefs, so that we can educate ourselves out of our ignorance, out of our complacency, out of our indifference, and be part of dismantling these structures. And so I make it available to children so that if as soon as they have the information mm-hmm. and like the you know like it said in that video it can be made very simple and very straightforward how do you explain this to parents i've had other folks on this program talk about this the acknowledgement first acknowledge that it exists acknowledge it's been systemic and at the same time how do you get white parents to separate that from any guilt or their defense being, well, I'm being blamed. How do you get them to separate that first and focus on the acknowledgement and then have this conversation with their kids? Um, Well, the way that I wrote the story and illustrated the story, I just show the effect of seeing the act of police brutality. Um, Just a few seconds of seeing on the screen the the video, the filming of the... um, police officer caught in the act. I I show the way that that lands in the child's body. And so 
I don't show the shooting. Mm -hmm. I show the child covering their ears and their shoulders raised in tension and their in their jaw and teeth clenched. And and then I show the child's confusion immediately after that moment when this child who has white skin is told by their mother who also has white skin, you don't need to worry about this. You're safe. Understand? And the child thinks but does not say out loud yet, no. Mm-hmm. You know, why, how could that be? And so we see this child then proceed throughout the book to reconcile the feeling that they have and the instinct of knowing they know that something really bad happened. And with this lack of information and this this justification or this idea that I'm, how can I be safe if that person is not safe? How am I supposed to be comfortable with that? So I start with the discomfort that's in your body already. And I take for granted that people are uncomfortable with the disparity and with the brutality. And then if you tune into that, I think things get a lot simpler, a lot faster. What kind of feedback did you get from white parents about your book? Uh, A lot of white parents are thrilled to have some language that they can offer their own well, themselves and their kids. So I do, those words that are on the page didn't come out immediately. Of course, I, you know, I educated myself. I thought about it. It's like, it is writing and it takes a lot, a lot of drafts. But the words on the page are meant to be a script for someone. And I kept it as spare as possible so they can go further in to their own exploration and to their child's questions in the moment. But, um, so there are those that are very hungry for that and very receptive to that and appreciative and they and they just go with it. But also there are those who love the book and they read it, but they don't want to read it to their kids because they're afraid of what how it's going to affect their kids. It's like, do I want to once I introduce this, I can't once I open this box, I can't put everything back in the box. And um, I have had at the most resistant someone a father said to me once at a private school I wouldn't I wouldn't read this to my child it will make him bad feel bad about being white and I asked him you know how sure are you that he doesn't already feel bad they're getting the information they're they're making their own observations and they're hearing that these inequities exist and that this violence exists I maintain that the only way to be healthy in your skin when you're white is to be invited into the movement to dismantle white supremacy and dismant- and expose these lies and undo what should never have been done. You have had your own conversations with your own kids about race. I want to replay a, a clip back from 2018 when we first spoke. Well, I talk about it with them all the time because they see that it affects me. They see me upset. If I, uh, when I learn about something that has happened that's violent, that's um, cruel, that's dangerous in the immediate and the long term. And um, it's very important to me to be aware that when they see me having a reaction, they would like to know more. I mean, I'm the person that they, I'm one of the people they depend on most. So um, if they don't know why, I'm upset. If they don't know what it is that's making me anxious, then they're going to fill in the blanks. So I make sure and let them know, oh, gosh, this thing. So this thing is going on. Now that some time has passed, they're a little older. 
And given the moment that we're in now, have you had additional conversations? And, and I want to specifically talk about the killing of George Floyd up in Minnesota. What conversations mm-hmm. did you did you have with your kids about that? Well, the um, so I had that experience. I think that many people have had where I opened my computer and I was watching a video posted by a dear friend and I knew it was serious, but I didn't know how serious until I got into watching it. And when my 10 year old walked toward me, saw the look on my face and walked toward my computer to see what I was seeing, I put up a stop sign with my hand, you know, basically just that universal sign for stop where you are, do not come any closer. I need to watch this first. Mm -hmm. I need to have my reaction. We're going to talk about it later. And um, I just told them what happened. I didn't show the video. That didn't feel necessary. Um, But I I let them know this. um, Four officers were involved. There was one standing and keeping the crowd away, one with the knee on the neck and two holding the person. You know, so I, I, I lay it out and it's very, even with the sparest details, they understand something went wrong. Why didn't you want them to see the video? Um, it is so terrifying to me personally to watch someone, well, because it's murder. It's watching a murder. And I know while I'm watching it, what it is because we've seen it so many times. And, um, and I'm having a physical reaction to it while it's happening that I'm gonna need to sort out later, I know, you know, because my skin is actually crawling, like my skin hurts while I'm watching and, you know, things like that, that I, now my 15 year old, he can watch it. Mm-hmm. I, I think he should see these. Um, but my my ten year old is not. So, to your knowledge, the ten year old has not seen it. To your knowledge. To my knowledge, he has not. But he has seen pictures, mm-hmm. and he has seen. I have shown him the videos, of. Um, so I went to one of the protests at Barclays Center in downtown Brooklyn, one of the first big gatherings and uprisings, and came home from there really rattled and then showed him the videos. This is where I was, look at what happened. And so he sees the police officers uh, spraying pepper spray and jumping on people and screaming at people. And I'm pointing to this picture and saying, I'm right there. You see me, I'm right there. And they can't, you know, just can barely see my head. (laughs) But um, I want them to know some, to some degree, the level of violence that's happening and who didn't start it i want them to see who didn't start it so but i do curate it i curate how much violence i want them to see same as i do with their movies and tv shows is there a need or desire for another book that deals with this children's book that deals with this many i i would like there to be many um the main thing is i want the children's books to I mean, what I relish and what I celebrate are the children's books that are not so pat. And, you know, my book never mentions hope. It never mentions kindness or tolerance or acceptance or or even empathy. Um, I, I want children to be aware of 
the forces at work which are evil and which work in ways outside of their body in the world but also in their body through their mind in this kind of brainwashing uh, that's part of how they're learning history and language you know what literature is the literature that they're studying so yes i think children need to be made aware of what the forces are at work so that they don't think that it's a don't it doesn't matter how you feel about racism, you have to work against it. You have to make choices that are going to disrupt it. What's your response to someone listening who says, well, that's understandable, but why not? And whether it could come from you or someone else, why not mm-hmm. follow up with what are the solutions and is there hope to eradicate racism? And if that's not your yeah. desire, that's fine, but could that yeah. be a positive component sure yeah i mean i i don't i don't mean to be such a drag um it's just that for too long i feel like and and i was raised this way too this idea that it's going to work out Mm -hmm. it's only going to work out if we work it out it's just not you 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 can't rest easy Mm -hmm. and i think anyone who's healthy and in tune with their own emotional and spiritual health is not resting easy now or ever. And, and that's not to say that people shouldn't rest. I mean, absolutely people should rest and, and um, look away and, and process what you've seen. Um, but in another way, I want white people to stop looking away. I just, I, we've looked away too much. Um, that's our go-to, that's our default, and it's just not acceptable. And there's too much death that comes from any death at all. Mm-hmm. But um, our unwillingness to look, our willingness to stay uh, hopeful is just not working out. <laughs> Since the tragic death of George Floyd, have you seen an increase in people reaching out to you for your book or for conversations like the one you and I are having? Yes, Yes. Um, And the reason it happened is because my publisher called me. Um, We had made my book about death. Death is stupid. Mm -hmm. We had made that free as a PDF download about a month before because of COVID and because so many children and families were dealing with death at a level that was new and an, an intensity that was new. So we had made that free. And then after um, George Floyd was murdered and previous to that, Breonna Taylor, and previous to that, Ahmaud Arbery, and you know, and on and on, she called me and said, hey, let's, uh, let's make Not My Idea free. Let's, let's, let's get this going. Let's get this into people's hands. Um, and that is what made the difference because as soon as people knew that it was free, they started to share a lot. And then all of a sudden, for the first time really ever, since I started making these books, the interest came pouring in. So it was that choice to make the book free online. And it is currently still free to download. We were going to give it free only to Juneteenth, but um, that just didn't make sense. We're just keeping it out there. It's just, it's available. Take it. What's next for you? Can you let our (sighs) listeners in on a little preview? (laughs) This is all part of your Ordinary Terrible Things children's book series, correct? Yes, yes. Um, Are you going to write anything about the pandemic, maybe? No, I haven't written anything about the pandemic. Um, 
I'm waiting to even see what this is. <laughs> Valid point. <laughs> um, no, I, I already have two projects in the works, and one is going to go to print in about a month, um, ideally, although there was a big slowdown so that we could pay attention to what's happening here with um, systemic racism. Uh, but the, the next book is more is about um, the love that dismantles whiteness, and it's really focusing on a uh, about like 11 or 12-year-old boy who is loved deeply deeply loved and he's so safe inside of his own mind and inside of his own family he has a father who is black he has a mother who is white they do not live together the child's family is cohesive and loving and um he has a good good friend who's also queer and um they're they're just they're all about their own power (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> These two kids who are teamed up and um, the adults in their lives really see them and really listen to them. It's called What You Don't Know, Not a Coming Out Story. Mm. And it's about queerness and blackness and dismantling whiteness. And um, I'm really excited. I'm, I, it's different, too. It looks different. And it's for a little bit older audience. As soon as I have a PDF, how about that? That'd be great. Your books, at least with the, the book that we talked about, it's unique because you create all of these neat little touch and feel and I'm trying mm-hmm. to be real cerebral here but I don't know how to be <laughs> with the book no, it's not cerebral that's your your words are completely spot on it's just little paper dolls and yeah. I put little fabric on their outfits and you use only recycled materials too yeah grocery bags <laughs> and old magazines and catalogs it's it's I patch it together with glue and ribbons just like you know just like i did when i was in fifth grade i mean this is the same way i told stories when i was a kid i'm getting a little bit better at it though (laughs) anastasia higginbotham author of the children's book not my idea a book about whiteness thank you for returning to the program and we should note that as we're looking at you on zoom you're wearing your closer look t-shirt right i am (laughs) this is one of our favorite shirts in this household it gets by various people in the household. My partner John wears it too. Well, we can yeah. send you a couple of more. We'll find oh, some. We gotta well, find them. We gotta dig into the the marketing boxes. Marketing's not in the building, so they won't know that we've been digging in there. It looks like my books too. It's like a brown background with bright color on it. So Anastasia, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Rose. Take care. That's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Shelly Canavy. If you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. And listen whenever you want, because Closer Look is now available as a podcast. Just visit NPR One or your favorite streaming app and subscribe. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us. 
WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.